want to say once again how wonderful it is to be here this morning. I know we've got an afternoon service after lunch as well, but I want to take this opportunity uh, to extend my thanks and appreciation to the congregation here for the invitation to be here, uh, for the hospitality. Thank you to Ryan and Allison specifically for keeping, uh, keeping us this week and putting up with us, uh, making sure that uh, we were well taken care of. Appreciate that. All of you who fed us uh, and, and spent time with us, we really appreciate it, have enjoyed this half week very, very much. It's passed very quickly. I can't believe it's already Sunday, uh, but it's been a fantastic time and appreciate you guys very much. We're going to continue our study on Jesus, on getting to know the real Jesus, uh, looking at his story from the scriptures. If you've not been able to be with us uh, through this week, we've talked about several aspects of who Jesus is. We've talked about the fact that he's eternal, that he has always existed, that he is God made flesh. He came down for a purpose But he was 100% human, 100% God. We talked about the fact that he's master and teacher, that he's a a lawgiver, that he uh, talked about that kingdom that was coming, the new covenant, the new law, and that standard that he was teaching. And we talked last night about the fact that he is Savior. And we looked at that last 24 hours or so of his uh, life leading up to his crucifixion uh, and the amazing sacrifice that he made for you and I. This morning, we want to talk about the fact that Jesus is King, And we want to continue that story, picking up where we left off. But as a way of introduction, I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This says, "...which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come." This verse is speaking, Paul is writing about Jesus Christ and about the fact that he is sitting at the right hand of God, on his throne, the ruler of the eternal kingdom, the king of kings, that he is far above all powers, all principalities. He's crushed Satan through his death on the cross and his resurrection, and now he is reigning as king. And so this morning we're going to look at that resurrection story and look at the fact that Jesus is alive today, sitting on his throne, reigning as king over the kingdom that you and I need to be a part of. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 50, as we pick up after the death of Jesus, and as that centurion looked up and he said, Truly this is the Son of God, we see a man named Joseph of Arimathea come, and he's going to make a request of Pilate. It says, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them. And he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. Now what's interesting about Joseph of Arimathea is we don't have a lot of information previous to this about Joseph, but we do know some things. We know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin council. Now remember, this was the council that held that sham trial of Jesus in the middle of the night. And it's very likely it says he didn't consent to that counsel and the deed of putting Jesus to death. So one of two things, either he wasn't called to that sham trial and he wasn't there and unable to even speak up against it, or he was there and spoke up against it. But one way or the other, he didn't want Jesus to be put to death. In fact, he believed in Christ. He was a follower of Jesus. And so this man, Joseph of Arimathea, being willing to stand up as one in the minority against the rest of the Sanhedrin council, is now, after Jesus' death, going and requesting that Pilate release his body to him. Now, one of the interesting things that I found in looking at this is that Rome did not release all of those criminals' bodies, especially if they were accused of high treason or something like that. They left the bodies of those criminals there for the elements and the animals to take care of. But if a person was not accused of high treason... 
then a request could be made and it could be granted that their body could be taken and buried. And this was the case here. And so this goes to back up Pilate's original statement about Jesus where he said he's done nothing worthy of death and he washed his hands of him. Pilate is willing to allow his body to be taken down and buried because he recognized Jesus was innocent and not worthy of the death uh, that he was uh, that, that they committed there against him. And so Joseph took his body and he actually laid him in a tomb in a sepulcher that was hewn out of stone. And so this is different than our burial processes today, but it would have likely been in the side of a hill or a mountain where there was, where there was rock and they hewn out a space in there to lay a body and then they would have a boulder or a rolling stone, so to speak, that they could move over the entrance and seal that tomb. And that's where they place the body of Jesus. In Matthew 27 and verse 64, the Jews are going to come before Pilate. Now, the Jews are smart. They don't always make the right decisions, but they're smart. They know what Jesus has been teaching. They remember that Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Now, they used that against him in the trial, pretending like he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but they actually knew what he was talking about because they come to Pilate and they ask for a squadron of Roman soldiers to be set at the tomb to make sure that within those three days, nothing happens to the body. Because they believe if the disciples, if Christ's disciples come and try to steal that body, that they will then lie and say that he was resurrected because they knew Jesus thought that he would be resurrected. And so these Jews actually approach Pilate and they request that he grant them this wish of sealing the tomb and providing these soldiers, and he does. So in verse 64, Pilate says, Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure or this is the Jews speaking, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, you have your watch. Go your way and make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now this watch was four Roman soldiers. And these four Roman soldiers took three-hour shifts. And at the end of three hours, they would trade with another four Roman soldiers. And then three hours later, another four Roman soldiers. And the purpose of that was so that those soldiers that were guarding whatever it was they were guarding, in this case the tomb, would be alert and fresh. They weren't coming off a 12-hour shift and that sort of thing. So they traded off every three hours, but it was four soldiers set at the entrance of the tomb. And then they sealed the tomb. What does that mean? It means something like this. And I've put a picture here, but they basically would have used ropes to... uh, place over the stone that had been sealed at the entrance of the tomb, and they would have connected those ropes to the outside of the rock, and then they would have put the big Roman seal either one time, or I think that picture has two or three times, that has the Roman seal on that over the ropes, and essentially this accomplished two things. It ensured that that whatever they were guarding had been inspected, and it was in its proper place, so in this case the body of Jesus, by putting that Roman seal on it, it said Rome is signifying The body is here. It's where it's supposed to be. And then two, it was a warning that if anyone came and messed with this or broke that seal, they could be put to death because breaking a Roman seal was worthy of death. So they not only sealed this tomb, they had four Roman soldiers guarding it. The Jews took their precautions well to try to keep anything from happening to the body of Jesus. But in Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. 
And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. So we've got Sunday morning now. It's the third day. These women are coming to the tomb. They're coming to, to prepare spices and put them on the body. And when they get there, something spectacular has happened. The chronology uh, is a little bit hard to pin down exactly when this happened. Uh, this seems to indicate, indicate that they may have even seen this angel come down, but it's not clear. They may have arrived after the angel came down. But there's an earthquake. The stone is rolled away. This angel appears. And when these women get there... The angel says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Now, I find it funny that it says the keepers did shake and became his dead men. So that's the four Roman soldiers that were set at a watch to guard the tomb. They became his dead men. I don't know if that means they literally passed out or if they were playing possum because they were afraid. I'm not sure. But regardless, they became his dead men and they're laying down on the ground and they're not having anything to do with this angel that has come down in this earthquake and the stone that's rolling away. And so Jesus is risen. On this third day of the week, with Roman soldiers guarding with that Roman seal on it, that stone is rolled away, and Jesus' body is not there. In Mark 16 and verse 9, it says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Now it appears that at some point as Mary... Mary Magdalene was one of the Marys that were there at the tomb. And so at some point, either on their way back or at some point later, Jesus decides to appear to Mary Magdalene. And it appears that she's the first one to see the risen Savior. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. But one, in that culture, um, it was just the way that it was. But in that culture, uh, the women's status was not what it is today in America in 2022. Um, Men were the ones that owned land. Men were the ones that had the voices. And so the fact that Jesus appeared to a woman first and allowed women to be the first ones to carry his message back to the rest of the group is just significant. And it shows that in Christ, men, women, bond or free, no matter what ethnicity we are, what country of origin we're from, that we can all come to Christ and be servants of Christ. And it's an amazing, beautiful gift the way that Christ treated everyone, no matter who they were. So it's just a fun, significant fact there. But Mary Magdalene returns and she, she delivers this message, says she's seen the Christ, and they don't believe her. And it would be hard. We've talked about the, hu- the human side of that, right? The fact that despite all the miracles and all the things that we've seen, it would still be hard to believe that someone has come forth from the grave. And so they don't believe her. And it says, After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the... Uh, residue, neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So this story is found in Luke chapter 24 of the two disciples. So apparently, and again, the chronology is not going to be perfect, but he appears to Mary Magdalene, then he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's covered in Luke 24. Uh, One of those disciples' names is Cleopas. The other one is not given to us. Uh, and he walks with them for a long time. They don't recognize him. He sits down to eat with them. He breaks bread and gives it to him. And it's at that moment when he breaks bread and gives it to him that their eyes were like opened and they realized that it's Jesus. And so they go back and they tell everybody. And again, they're not believed. At some point in there, he also appears to, pri- uh, to Peter. 
privately, and we don't have that recorded, the interaction, but we do have references to it. Luke 24 and 34, after that road to Emmaus story, those two men say he also appeared to Simon. And then we have Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5 saying that Jesus appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. So at some point, Jesus also appears to Peter by himself, and then he's going to appear to the group. In John chapter 20 and verse 19, we see this first interaction with his disciples. It says, Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them the hands, his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And so Jesus appears first to his ten disciples. So we're minus Judas, who at this point has hanged himself, and we're minus Thomas. Thomas is not there at this interaction. But Jesus finally appears to these. They now, having seen Jesus and seen the the prints in his hands and in his side, they believe, they're on board, they recognize it, and Jesus says, as God has sent me, I am now going to send you. And so he tells them about the mission that he's going to send them on. But Thomas wasn't there. It says, but Thomas, in verse 24, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now there's a reason Thomas has the nickname Doubting Thomas. Because he's the guy that doubted, despite Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, despite Peter, despite Cleopas and the other disciple, despite the other ten guys that are going... We've seen him. He's alive. He's risen. It's exactly what he said was going to happen. Thomas goes, I haven't seen it. I'm not believing it. I've got to see the prince in his hands. I've got to see that spear mark in his side before I'm going to believe. Well, Jesus is going to grant his wish. In John 20, verse 26, says, After eight days again his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now one of the interesting things that we see about Jesus in his post-resurrected state is that he has been given new life by the Spirit of God. And he has been changed in a way that we ultimately one day will be changed. And the doors being shut there is an indication to us that Jesus essentially came through the walls or through the door being shut to appear to them. And we recognize that our physical bodies are not going to exist the way that they exist now in eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the change that will take place and will be glorified. And we'll have a body that can be eternal. And I believe that that's what is indicated here, that Jesus has been changed. But he still has his body. He still is able to show the print of the nails and in his side. But that body has been changed in a way. It has been glorified in a way that it is powerful and miraculous and ultimately can be eternal. But nevertheless, Jesus comes through those walls and he appears to the disciples, including Thomas. And he shows Thomas the print of the nails and the print of the spear. And Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And so finally, he is able to see with his own eyes and he believes. And a powerful moment, I'm sure that that was for him, but it's a powerful story for us, as Michael mentioned the other night, that Jesus says, even more blessed are those who without seeing choose to believe. And that's you and I. 
That's us who are not able to see the print of the, the nails in his hand and the spear in his side. But we are called to believe in Christ as the risen Savior. Now these Jews, let's go back to them. They set that Roman watch. They sealed the tomb. They were prepared, they thought. Except they didn't realize that Jesus was actually going to be raised from the grave. So now they have to go to cover-up mode and figure out how they're going to try to cover up the truth. In Matthew 28, verse 11, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. I wonder why. So these four Roman soldiers, whichever ones they were that were there at the time when the angel came down and the earthquake happened and the stone was rolled away, they became his dead men. Well, they recovered. And they come to town and they go to the chief priests, the, the Jewish leaders, and they go, this is what happened. An earthquake happened, an angel came down, he's gone. And the chief priests and the elders decide what they're going to do is pay these soldiers off to lie and tell a different story. It says, saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So they bribed and paid these soldiers off to lie about it and say that Jesus' disciples came and stole his body. Now, I don't know what's worse. Either way, as these four Roman soldiers, you, looked, you look inept at your job. Either way, the body's gone. But in this case, they, get, they, got, they got paid, and the Jews have basically promised that if you know, it gets to your superior's ears and you're going to get in trouble for letting the body escape, we got your back. We're going to cover you and make sure that you're not harmed. So they pay him off, the soldiers agree, and they lie and say that the disciples of Jesus stole the body. But I want us to recognize the truth that's hidden within this falsehood. And I don't want us to pass over it. Because they had to concoct this lie, it tells us something. One way or the other, the tomb was empty. And the Jews recognized it and acknowledged it and covered it up and lied about it and paid money to the soldiers. But they couldn't deny the fact that it was empty. I want to read you a couple of quotes from some external sources that I found interesting as I looked at the resurrection story. This first one is from Justin Martyr, who is a Christian uh, apologist from 165, and he's actually visiting and dealing, corresponding with some of the Jews at that time. And I just want us to recognize that even 100, 120 years later, this is still the story that is being told by the Jews. He says, Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb. And he was copying down a letter that was written to him by some of these Jewish leaders. So 120 years later, that's still the story that Jews are telling, that, that they put the deceiver, Jesus, to death, but his disciples came and stole his body. Jacob Kramer, who's a New Testament critic who has specialized in a study of the resurrection, said, by far, most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. What you find when you begin researching this concept of the empty tomb is that both biblical and secular sources agree the tomb was empty. Where the disagreement happens is how it got empty and what you believe about that. But the reality is the, the tomb was empty. And Dr. William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher, professor, author, and Christian apologist, said the simple fact that the Christian fellowship founded on belief in Jesus' resurrection came into existence and flourished in the very city where he was executed and buried is powerful evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. I want us to think about that. Where did Christianity start? Where did the belief system start and start spreading from? Jerusalem. The same place that Jesus was put to death. 
the same place that he was buried. And if the story of Jesus was all a lie, if it was all concocted and the disciples truly did come and steal his body and they lied about it and it was all some big fabrication to pretend that Jesus was alive and well, all the Jews or the Romans had to do was go, or if the, t if the body was still there, all they had to do was go, you're wrong, it's right here. We've secured his body, it's here. But they were unable to do that. Christianity spread and flourished because the tomb was empty, because there was no way to refute it, because the Jews and the Romans couldn't point to the tomb and go, his body's right there. Christianity would have been snuffed out at the very beginning if that were the case. But it flourished and it spread because the tomb was empty. Now I want to cover this idea of, in just a moment, of did they lie? Because I think it's important that we cover that. Is it possible, even if they had somehow pulled it off to get past the four soldiers and past the Roman seal and risk their, their, their lives to do that, what motive would they possibly have had? I want you to pay attention to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 through 8. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Eyewitness testimony in any event you're trying to prove is important. It's an important part of recognizing what the actual facts are. And in this case, Paul says that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at once. And he says, the greater part remain unto this present. So at the time in which he's writing 1 Corinthians, he's going, the 500 people that saw Jesus at the same time, most of them are still alive right now. And his point was, if you doubt what I'm saying about the fact that Jesus has risen, all you've got to do is go visit with the hundreds of people that have seen him and that will testify to the fact that he is alive and is risen. So let's think about this. It's not just one person that was, that was saying that Jesus was resurrected. It's not just the twelve. It's hundreds of people that saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. So I want to ask you some questions. Did they all lie? If they did, they signed their own death warrants. And if you know the history of the apostles, you'll remember that all of them, except for John, were martyred for their faith. They, many of them were tortured, and they were put to death for saying that Jesus was resurrected and for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it was all a lie, if they had stolen his body and fabricated that, what possible motive could they have had to lay their lives down? Would you give your life for something you know to be false? You know, you can be mistaken. You can believe that something is true and give your life for it, and maybe you're wrong about it, but typically people don't die for something they know is a lie. That's dedication for no reason. And you really think that those 11 apostles that were martyred for the cause of Christ, that not one of them recanted their story, not one of them said, just kidding, we made it up, I'll tell you where his body is. Not one of them. You really think they would have done that if this was all a lie? Of course not. It doesn't make sense. That goes against human nature. Well, so some other people have decided they didn't lie, they hallucinated. See, the people that saw the resurrected Jesus, it was actually a hallucination based upon their, their desire and wish to see him. They just hallucinated. The problem with that is 500 people saw him at one time. And hallucinations are not shared experiences. Like dreams, they're very similar to that. Have you ever had a shared dream with someone else? I've never woken up next to my wife and said, that's a great dream we just had, right? It doesn't happen. Dreams are personal. They're individual. And the same thing is true with hallucinations. We don't share hallucinations. Yet 500 people 
saw the resurrected Christ at one time. How do you explain that? They didn't lie because the lie meant they were being put to death for it. They didn't hallucinate because it's not a shared experience. You know what that leaves me with? They saw him. They saw him. And they were telling the truth. Jesus is not here. He is risen. Jesus is resurrected today. Jesus is alive today. And it was a powerful thing that they saw and a powerful testimony they were willing to go to their deaths to share with others, like you and I. And we're able to read their eyewitness testimony today. We're able to hear about the story of the resurrected Christ and believe in Jesus based on what they saw and were willing to die for. And to me, that's powerful. And I think we need to recognize how important the message was for them and what they were willing to go through for it so that you and I could hear it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul said, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Paul said, If he's not really raised, all of this is for nothing. It means nothing. And we're of most men most miserable because we're suffering and we're being put in prison and we're being tormented and we're being killed for nothing if he's not raised. He said, but the reality is, the truth is, he's alive. And he did that first. He became the first fruits of them that slept. What does that mean? He did it first. He came back from the grave by the power of God showing us the way that through that same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, so you and I can be raised for eternity with Him. You and I can have that same glorified body that Jesus did. You and I can live in heaven forever with God. Now Jesus, He has appeared to the disciples. He walks with them for about 40 days, spends time with them, teaching them the kingdom of God. Acts 1 verse 3 says, "...to whom also He showed Himself alive." after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I wonder what those conversations were like. You know, Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom and taught a lot of things while he was here before his crucifixion, but they, the disciples still didn't understand. They kept asking. Even after his resurrection, they still asked, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? There was, there was elements of the plan that they still just could not wrap their head around. But at least at this point, they have seen him crucified, they have seen him raised, and he is talking to them about the kingdom and about what's about to come for them and how amazing it would have been to be able to go back and hear some of those conversations and hear the teaching that Jesus was giving over these 40 days. And then in verse 8, he tells them this before he ascends to the Father. He says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This was the last time that Jesus in body was seen here on this earth in this way. And he gives them this last instruction, which we uh, refer to in the Gospels at the end as the Great Commission, where he basically is telling them, look, I'm sending you out. And this same message that I've been teaching over these last three years, my death, my burial, my resurrection now, he says, I want you to go and tell it to others. And we're going to spread the message of this eternal kingdom where you can have salvation from your sins. And so he gives them this mission. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. One of the other things Jesus made sure to tell his disciples before he left 
was that Satan is no longer in control here. Satan no longer has power on this earth. The eternal kingdom is here. I am now king. I am now reigning. All power is mine in heaven and in earth. And so the instruction is to go out and to preach the gospel in Jesus' name because Jesus is now the most powerful force, although he always has been as God. But he's the most powerful, dominant ruler on earth and everywhere else. And there's no reason to fear Satan or fear evil if you're with Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 18, 18 through 19. I want to go back and I want to remind you of what Jesus taught about his kingdom and what he was building. He said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We've talked a little bit about the kingdom this week. In Daniel 2 verse 44, prophesying that in the days of these kings, which we know to be Rome, that God would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. We talked about some of those prophecies that Jesus would be the king of that eternal kingdom. Mary was told that right from the start. And that Jesus came to establish his kingdom. But what is that kingdom? What does that mean for you and I? Is it a place? Is it a kingdom of geography on this earth somewhere? No. That's what the disciples thought. And Jesus said no. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, would my servants fight? My kingdom is not from hence. It's different. But Jesus told us. He gave us the answer in his teaching. In Matthew 16, here is the answer. He says it's upon this rock. What rock? Peter? Many people believe that the church was built on Peter, that Peter is the rock there. That's not the rock. It's what Peter said. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, it's upon that rock that I'm going to build my church. What's a church? Church is a calling out of people, a congregation of people. What Jesus said he was building was a group of people that were going to be his, that were followers of his. We think about church sometimes, and we think about four walls and a roof. We're in a church right now. We're really not in a church right now. We're in a church house. We're in a church building. We're not in a church. We are the church. The church is the group of people that Jesus said are going to be mine. And so Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then notice he says, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he uses his church and his kingdom here in this passage interchangeably. They are one and the same. And what we find is that eternal kingdom that Jesus came to establish and to be the eternal ruler of is his church, his group of people, past, present, and future, who belong to him. That is his kingdom. That is who he reigns over. In fact, in Luke 17, verse 20, Jesus said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo, here, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus said, this is a different kind of kingdom. It's not a place you have to go on earth. He said, the kingdom of God exists here. If you'll give yourself over to Jesus and you'll obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you can be a part of the kingdom that he built, the church that he built. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 says, And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus is head of the church. And if he is head of the church, he is king of the kingdom. Because the kingdom and the church are one. They are the same. He is the eternal king of kings. He is reigning over his kingdom today. The question is, are you a part of that kingdom? Are you in it? It doesn't matter if you're American. It doesn't matter if you're from another country. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Because Jesus came for all of us. 
And any person that follows him and chooses to be his can be a part of his church, his kingdom. He rules today. And I want you to know that he's promised if he rules that kingdom today, he's going to come back. And he's going to take us with him to that eternal home of heaven that's promised. In John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And this is the teaching that comforted the apostles as they faced torment and they faced becoming a martyr for the cause of Christ. These types of teachings of Christ are what kept them going and is what has kept Christians going throughout the centuries and it's what can keep you and I going in this life today, knowing the promise of the eternal home of heaven that is awaiting you and I. That there is coming a day when our fleshly bodies are going to fail. If Christ doesn't return first, they're going to fail. But Jesus has promised that whether we die first or whether we are alive and remaining, He's coming back. He's not leaving us here. We're going to spend eternity in that wonderful place called heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul writes, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if, you believe, or if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now let's stop there for a moment. The asleep there is King James for having passed on. Okay? These are people that are dead in Christ. And he says, I don't want you to sorrow like those that have no hope. Because we have hope. We know that there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return, even for those that have died in Christ. And he says, those that are alive and remain will not prevent them which are asleep. That means proceed. We're not going to go first. You see, what's going to, what's going to happen is that Christ is going to return, and those that are dead in Christ, they're going to raise first. And he tells us this as we continue in verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What a great and glorious day that is going to be for those that are a member of his kingdom. And I want us to imagine that and think about that and put ourselves there in that moment for just a second. Because it could be today... It could be tomorrow that suddenly we hear the greatest trumpet sound that we've ever heard and we hear shouting from heaven and angels are descending from on high with shouts and with trumpets playing and we're going to immediately know and recognize that this is nothing that is human made but this is God returning and Jesus is going to appear in the clouds. And then we're going to, I think, feel the earth vibrate as graves begin breaking open and we begin to see people that are dead and gone, buried in these graves, and their bodies are going to begin to come forth. And we're going to see and be witness to that miraculous event and wonder and be amazed at the things that we see. And then we're going to feel our bodies begin to lift off the ground. And we're going to feel that change begin to take place in us. And we're going to lift towards the ground, towards the clouds, uh, uh, with the mass of people both dead and buried from long ago and those that are alive and remain. And we're going to join together in the clouds and we're going to see Jesus there. And we're going to see our Lord and Savior. And I almost imagine that He'll have His arms outstretched, inviting us, welcoming us, ready to take us home to that place that He has prepared. 
And it's going to be an amazing and wonderful day. And when he does that and he takes us home to heaven, we're going to be in a place that we can't even imagine the wonders that exist there. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2 says, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 4 says, And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. After we join with Jesus in the clouds and He takes us to that judgment day and we're able to then go on to heaven with Him, we're going to live for eternity in a place where death is no longer our enemy. Where we don't have to fear death because we don't have to face it. Where we no longer have to suffer pain. Some of us here that suffer from disease or from sickness or from pain that we deal with on this earth, that will be gone. And that new glorified body will be given to us. Those loved ones that we have lost that we miss, that are in Christ, that we haven't seen for years and years and years, we get to see them again. We get to be reunited with them. What an amazing, wonderful place that that's going to be that Jesus promised to you and to me. And in Acts chapter 2, I want to conclude with this story and let you know that Jesus told us how you can have that promise. He told us how you can be a part of His kingdom how you can look forward to that day of joining him in the clouds and spending eternity in heaven. And he told it to us through Peter. He said, I'll give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we see Peter putting the key into the door of the kingdom in Acts chapter 2 and opening it up for the people then and for you and I today. He said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. These people were preached to about Jesus, and they said, We have sinned. What do we do? And Peter gave him the answer. And with his answer, he unlocked the door. He said, Repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ. And if you'll do that, you'll have salvation of your souls and the promise of that eternity in heaven. What do we see? Verse 41 says, They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In this story, we see that kingdom begin to get its first citizens. And these 3,000 people enter into the doors of the kingdom you and I can be a part of that kingdom too. That kingdom is the kingdom that's eternal. That kingdom is what's going to last when all of this world is gone. That kingdom is what allows us to reign forever in heaven with Christ. If you're not a part of His kingdom this morning, you don't have that promise of heaven. You don't have the ability to look forward to that day of Jesus' return with anticipation and with joy. And so if you're not in that state this morning, My begging and my pleading today is to make the decision to be His so that you can look forward to that day and you can spend the rest of your life in eternity with God and with Jesus who died for you. If we can help you to be baptized into Christ this morning or to restore your relationship with God and make it what He wants it to be, we want to help you. If you'll come forward and sit in a front row as we stand and sing.